Oswald Chambers said this, Christianity is not devotion to work or to a cause or a doctrine, but devotion to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people today want you to follow them. Many people want you to pursue them. Many people today want you to worship them. But there is only one person that is worthy of our worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. The take-home message is this. There is only one person worth following. John the Baptist provides an example of what it means to point others toward Jesus. And this testimony of John the Baptist here in John 1, it occurs over a period of three days. So we're going to walk through this day by day. We're just going to title the first day, I am not worthy. Because that's the attitude of John the Baptist here. I am not worthy. So look at John 1, 19 through 28, and I'll read through it for us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So at the time of Jesus, a majority of Jews were waiting for their Messiah. There's no doubt about that. But there were clearly different views among the Jews about who to expect. So here's this great man, kind of weird man, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness. And so they come to him and they say, who are you? And he plainly says, in keeping with his humility, I am not the Christ. So they say, are you Elijah? Now why would they have asked that? Well, maybe you remember in the Old Testament that Elijah, the great prophet, he never died. He went up into heaven in a whirlwind. And in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it says that God will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they say, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. But elsewhere, later, Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. So how do we reconcile this? Well, all you need to do is ask yourself this question. Who rejects the title? And who bestows the title? John the Baptist rejects the title of Elijah here. He may have genuinely thought it wasn't his title to bestow on himself or to give, in keeping with his humility. He also may genuinely have not known yet that he was the Elijah who was to come. 
But then Jesus, who gives him the title later, who has authority, who is the Lord, says he was the Elijah to come. So John the Baptist is Elijah. They ask him, are you the prophet? And that's the capital P, prophet. So in Moses' final sermon, his final words to Israel, known as the book of Deuteronomy, he said in Deuteronomy 18.15 that a prophet like him would be raised up by God to speak to the people. So this prophet like Moses, this capital P prophet the people were waiting for, they ask if that's John, and he says no. We know in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is identified as that capital P prophet, that prophet like Moses. But what does John the Baptist say about himself? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Maybe you'll remember uh, we talked about John the Baptist being a forerunner. So in the ancient world, kings had forerunners. So when a king would be going to another country, they would send their forerunner who would get there and say, prepare for our king to arrive. And in the same way, John the Baptist was the forerunner for King Jesus. And he came with a baptism of repentance. You know, the quality that stands out about John the Baptist the most is his humility. This was an extremely humble man. In fact, he said that he is not worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. In the ancient world, unstrapping a sandal was one of the lowest tasks of a servant. And John, who was this great man, said, I'm not even worthy to do that. It reminds me of a story I heard from a pastor named Greg Laurie. So Greg Laurie's story was told in the movie The Jesus Revolution. And so Pastor Greg Laurie, he tells a story that when he was younger, he was invited by Billy Graham to join him at one of his revivals. And so he rode over in the car with Billy Graham to this great big stadium in Portland, Oregon. And Billy Graham is probably the most famous Christian of the last century. And this would have been at the height of his fame. And so here's young Pastor Greg standing there as Billy Graham walks up to the pulpit and he said that people looked at Billy Graham like he was the Messiah or like he was Jesus. I mean, that's how much people adored this person. And he gave the message and he gets back in the car and it's Billy Graham sitting in the back seat with his son Franklin and Pastor Greg is sitting in the front and he's just totally starstruck. And so he's kind of like Peter at the Transfiguration, you know, where Peter's just saying things to say things. That's Greg Laurie sitting in the front. So he turns around and he says, uh, Pastor Graham, that was a wonderful message. I'm going to do my best Billy Graham voice here. To which Billy Graham replied, well, that's the gospel. So Greg turns around and he thinks, I know that. Uh, I was trying to compliment you. <laughs> so they keep driving and he's still trying to think of something to say. So he turns around later and he says, Pastor Graham, I loved that point where you said that Jesus can resensitize my heart. To which Pastor Graham replied, well, he can. <laughs> Pastor Greg turns around and says, I know that. <laughs> I'm trying to give you a compliment. Won't you accept it? He said he couldn't pin a compliment on Billy Graham. It was like water off a duck's back. And so then they get back to their place and uh, Billy Graham disappears for a while and he comes back out 
And Pastor Greg looks over and Billy Graham just has his pajama pants on, but he hasn't taken off his dress shoes yet. And he's in the kitchen and he's eating sardines out of a can. I heard a lot of ewes there. <laughs> but Pastor Lori, as a young man, just thought, you know, that's, that's it. That's what humility is. He said his return to normalcy was so fast. He was not taken in by everybody adoring him or putting titles on him. He was a humble man. And I think it's a great picture of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this guy who we can scarcely imagine how spirit-filled and powerful this person was, sent literally by God. But when he was out there, he wasn't all about himself. He didn't think too highly of himself. And when they came to him and asked him who he was, all he could let out was, I am not worthy. That was his attitude. And it reminds us of the power of humility. It's been said that humility may be the greatest trait a Christian can have. It's right up there with the big three, faith, hope, and love. And the Bible bestows rewards on people who are truly humble. In fact, in Proverbs 22.4, it says the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So let's talk about some biblical rewards for humility. The first one we'd say is riches. Now you're thinking, Billy, are you about to preach the prosperity gospel? The answer to that is absolutely not. And if you've been here long enough, you know we don't preach the prosperity gospel. But I'm preaching the Bible here. The Bible says this. So you might ask me, well, John the Baptist, he, he didn't seem very rich. Well, let me ask you this. Is he rich now? I think he's doing pretty well today. What about Jesus? Was Jesus rich in this life? No. Is he pretty rich now? He's doing pretty well now, I think. And so, whether it's in this life or in the next life, there are riches for humble people. Plus, we can all just look at the world and know that a lot of times, humble people just rise through the ranks. Because we like humble people. We like people who don't think too highly of themselves. So riches would be one reward. Another one would be honor. If you want to be honored in your family, in the church, in your workplace, you know what the Bible would tell you? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. The Bible says that pride comes before a fall, but humility comes before honor. When we are prideful and we think too highly of ourselves and, and we think too highly of our own wisdom and knowledge, we are actually in the most dangerous place a Christian can be. We are about to fall from grace. But when we humble ourselves and test and examine our actions before a holy and just and righteous God and we let other Christians speak into our life, we are in the place that comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. Another one would be life. You know, the very act that we preach at Prairie Bible Church every week of placing your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is an act that can only be done with absolute humility. No one comes to Christ with pride. You have to come to Christ and say, I don't have it in me. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. And that's an act of humility. But when you turn to Christ in faith, you receive abundant life now and eternal life in the future. Jesus said things like, my peace 
I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. There is an abundance of righteousness and peace and joy that can only be found in humbling yourself at the foot of the cross. That act leads to life now and eternal life in the future. The final thing we would say here is God's favor. Maybe you've seen the verse that occurs more than once that says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know another translation for that word grace? Favor. God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. In my first uh, ministry full-time position, uh, one of the first conversations I had was with this, this man who'd been an elder for decades. And I was just picking his brain. And one of the first things he said to me, he said, Billy, has anybody opposed to God ever won? I thought to myself, no. <laughs> Nobody opposed to God has ever won. The Bible says no wisdom, no counsel can prevail against the Lord. He said, good, then don't be proud. Because if you're proud, God opposes the proud. And you will never win when God is fighting against you. He opposes the proud. But he gives favor to the humble. Which means, when you're on God's side, when you have his favor, you can't lose. So let's choose as a church and as individuals not to be prideful, but to be humble. Like John the Baptist was humble. John the Baptist said on day one, I am not worthy. Here's what he said on day two. He is worthy. He is worthy. Look at verse 29 with me. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John the Baptist bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John sees Jesus walking. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which is an absolutely staggering statement to think about. John the Baptist is not teaching some form of universalism here. Okay, He's not saying that Jesus just wipes away everyone's sins whether or not they turn to him. That's not his point. He's saying Jesus' sacrifice is so supreme that it is sufficient to remove the sins of every single person, past, present, future, who turns to him in faith. That's a lot of sins. But it speaks to how great Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is. Interestingly, John says, I myself did not know him. So even though John was Jesus' cousin, Yet John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until God revealed it to him. John saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. And that was when he was able to say, this is the Son of God. I want to talk a little bit about what that term, Lamb of God, means. 
Uh, when my wife saw this part of the sermon, she said, that is a whole flock of lambs. There's a lot of them. But it'll be pretty touch and go. The point of this exercise, and I wrote all these down on your bulletins if you don't want to feverishly take notes. Um, the point of this exercise is to meditate upon who Jesus is. Because from Genesis to Revelation, we are taught about lambs and they teach us something about the Son of God. The first lamb would be the provisional lamb. In Genesis 22, there's this really interesting scene where Abraham is tested by God and told to sacrifice his son, Isaac, the son of promise. And so Isaac is carrying this wood up the mountain, which of course will will symbolize how Christ will carry the wooden cross up the mountain called Calvary and die for our sins. But as Isaac is walking with his father, he says, Father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, God will provide the lamb, my son. And so that's the provisional lamb. And it's that first picture we see of what Jesus will do on the cross for us. In the book of Exodus, the next book of the Bible, we hear about this Passover lamb. You remember how Israel was in Egypt for 400 years as slaves and they were you know, just mistreated and the Egyptians put their sons to death? And then God showed up through, through the hand of Moses and did miracles in that land. And then he put the firstborn sons of Egypt to death. And before he did that, he told the Israelites to take a lamb, a Passover lamb, to eat it in haste and to take the blood from the sacrifice and put it on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over their houses. And when we get to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ is called our Passover Lamb. Because when you and I turn to the Lamb of God in faith, His blood covers us and protects us from the wrath of God. We also hear about the sacrificial Lamb. Remember that Old Testament system of sacrifice where priests would almost serve as butchers because they had to give so many sacrifices for sins? Well, lambs were one of the major burnt offerings, sin offerings, and peace offerings. Of course, as a reflection of Christ, who was going to be our sacrifice. Then we hear about the suffering lamb. If you ever want to find the gospel in the Old Testament, the clearest place you'll see the gospel is Isaiah 53. It's one of the most wonderful chapters of the Bible. And there in Isaiah 53, we are told that Christ was our suffering lamb. You might even call him our silent lamb. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a silent sheep that is led to the slaughter. He was our suffering lamb. This calls to mind that when Christ went to the cross, he did it voluntarily. Remember when he was being judged, he opened not his mouth. And remember he said, I could call down legions of angels right now, but I'm not going to do it because I'm voluntarily giving myself as a suffering lamb for our sins. He's also called the pure lamb. In 1 Peter it says that Christ is without spot or blemish. And that is what makes his sacrifice so special. The fact that he was perfect and sinless. The only person never to sin. So when he died on the cross, he didn't die for anything he had done. He died to wipe away our sin. He's a pure lamb. He's also the powerful lamb. Pastor Craig says often that 
we love to lift up this meek and mild Jesus, which is great. Jesus is meek and mild, but he's also powerful among us. And when you get to Revelation and the slain lamb has returned at the judgment, the people who reject Jesus, they will want the mountains and rocks to fall on them to escape the wrath of the lamb. And when the armies are arrayed against him, it says that he will conquer them. You know, one of the greatest things about being a Christian is that we serve a Savior who's not just low and with us and among us, but He's powerful and He can move mountains and He can overcome anything we face in this life when we turn to Him. And we pray in Jesus' name and we conquer with Him. He's also the shepherd lamb. In Revelation, it says that this lamb will be His people's shepherd and He will lead them to living water. It calls to mind how Jesus says here in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's our marriage lamb. Right there at the end of the Bible, just a few chapters to go there in Revelation 19, we're taught about this marriage supper of the lamb. And the lamb is described as a husband that's receiving his bride at the greatest wedding ceremony that will ever happen. And we know that this describes Christ and his people. We talk a lot about how Christ in the church is the ultimate picture for marriage. He is the marriage or husband lamb. And all of this leads back to Revelation 5. That the lamb is worthy. He is the worthy lamb. In Revelation 5, there's this interesting scene where the apostle John sees a scroll in heaven at the end of time. And he begins to weep. Because nobody is found worthy to open the scroll. Until suddenly there is a slain lamb that we know is Jesus. And he is called worthy to open the scroll. In Revelation 5, 11 and 12, John the Apostle says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne in the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a lot of angels. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb, he was saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Here's what he was saying. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. And that should take a lot of pressure off of us as Christians. That if you are a Christian and you are someone who's maturing in Christ, there will come people along who want to follow you and want you to mentor them. And there's leaders in this life that you might follow. But if you're a leader of people, what you need to remember is the goal is not for people to follow you. It's for you to be an imitator of Christ so that they will see you and follow him. That's why we say, don't look at me, look at him. It's also an encouragement to know that we are not ultimately responsible for people's salvation. I tell people all the time who have lost loved ones to pray for them and to pray to the one who is able to save them. But we ourselves, we can't save anyone. And John the Baptist knew that. Billy Graham knew that. And we need to know that as Christians, that we are just responsible for saying, don't look at me, look at him. I am not worthy, but he 
is. The final day, we're just going to call, follow him. Follow him. So look at verse 35 with me. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist didn't just say, look at him. He said, follow him. This is the famous John the Baptist who said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And this is not the last we will hear from John the Baptist here in the Gospel of John, but at this point in the narrative, he begins to fade from the scene and the attention is turned to the ministry of Christ. And nobody welcomed this more than John the Baptist. He doesn't hold on to his disciples. He doesn't let Jesus pass by and hope that they stay with him. No, he says, behold the Lamb of God. In other words, follow him. He says, there is your Lamb. There is your Savior. Even someone as great as John the Baptist knew that he was not meant to be followed. Because there's only one person worth following. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.